0: Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing, with your host, Amy Woods-Butler.
1: Friends, today it's my pleasure to welcome Margot Note onto the show. Margot is a professional archivist and consultant who's made it her mission to help individuals and organizations harness their history. Margot has 19 years experience in working nationally and internationally as a certified archivist and records manager, and she has not one but two master's degrees, um, one from Drexel University in library and information science, and another master's in history from Sarah Lawrence College. Luckily for us, she is also the author of a wonderful book called Creating Family Archives, How to Preserve Your Papers and Photographs. And that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today, um, how we can help our clients preserve these wonderful artifacts that they have. So welcome, Margot. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What I thought we could start off with is, is having you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in archiving and then... And then we can maybe talk a little bit about what that looks like. You know, what is the day in an archivist look like?
0: Sure. So I think I was always interested in, in libraries and in history. So I, my original career path was to become a librarian, and then because I went Um, for a master's in history, I got interested in archives. So history is all about looking at primary sources, which can be photographs or documents or ephemera. And so that got me interested in becoming an archivist. So I got my education um, in becoming an archivist. And then I started working and I've been working, you know, for many years in this information management field. And about two years ago, decided to become my own consultant and have my consulting company. So it's been very interesting to see um, what kind of um, pain points or problems my clients have that I can help them with. And I think it also helps that I have a organizational mind. So I love to create order out of chaos. And because I'm organizing other people's materials, I can, I can approach it with kind of a, a neutral, feeling. So, you know, I have this energy and positivity towards it, and I can really help solve people's problems. So that's what I've been really enjoying.
1: When I was reading your book, that was one of the things that struck me was that, well, two points. One is how um, overwhelming it can be to see our archives. So, well, not even archives, just, you know, the piles of stuff (laughs) that we inherit from family members, that we have, um, uh, you know, photos that we've taken on our own, letters that we've written. that we have from 100 years ago, which are all rich primary source materials for people who want to have a life story done or a family story written. But when you're really close to it, it's very hard to get that organized um, because there's so much emotion with it. And, and I think that's what I appreciated mostly when I was reading your book, it comes across very clearly that there is a system that you can follow and it and you delineate the steps very well. So, it, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. It doesn't have to be scary. You can organize by chronology, by family or individual, by subject or event, which, you know, those would be any three of those would be good starting points, I, I imagine. But also, just that f- the fact that you can come in there um, and Without the emotional ties to the material, you can help people move forward. Just like personal historians go in and without the emotional ties to the stories of people's life, somebody's life, we can help them move forward Forward with recording those stories. Exactly. And that's what
0: I, I really enjoy. And so I think Creating Family Archives came out of... Um, going over my husband's aunt's house and she became the new matriarch of the family so she inherited a lot of family materials after her mother passed away and her older sisters passed away and she was completely overwhelmed by what she had and so I came over to help to help her but by looking at everything on her dining room table and her kitchen island, I thought wow this is a lot of materials and so I was thinking you know I really should you know and the Aunt Donna in my book is so many people that I know. So how can I kind of translate the personal skills of an archivist that we use in museums and archives and historical societies? And how can I bring that to kind of everyday people and their problems? So that's why I, I, I definitely try to make my book um, very easy to read with simple solutions and to... Um, break down the archiving process and bite-sized pieces so you can only, you know, if you only have maybe a half an hour a week to work towards it, you can still make progress slowly and steadily because it is really completely overwhelming um, if you think about a project as a whole. But if you think about it in little pieces, it's not actually that bad at all. And it's very approachable. And it's very worth the, you know, the labor that you put into it. Um, I think really, um, you reap the benefits very quickly when you get your um, family and personal archives in order.
1: Yes. Okay. So just just to let people know, the Aunt Donna in your book, that was, I think, how you opened the book. And it was the story of you coming and seeing all of this stuff spread across the dining room table. And that's, that that was what gripped me the most um, when I fir- when I was reading your book because, I, you know, here I wanted to learn all about this and reach out to you for help with my clients, mm-hmm. so my, my personal history clients. But um, the surprising thing to me was that I, I wanted to roll up my sleeves and just dive in and start working on my own archive, you know, right from the beginning because Aunt Donna could be me mm-hmm. as well. Now, I'm... I'm not the kind, you know, I, I don't think I've put together a, a family photo album since probably the early 1990s. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, I'm not a very visual person, but I have my own things. I have things from an aunt who died oh, 15 years ago on my father's side. And now recently, both of my parents have died. So there's there's just this constant influx of family artifacts that are coming in. And it can be incredibly overwhelming. And you you have a, um, a PDF, um, uh, a, a little booklet on how people can really start. And one of the things that you say in that is to, to prioritize. And why don't you talk about that? I think you even have a little scale. So it will help direct people on where is the most important part to start sure with. so i think that's
0: important too it's like where it's almost like where you can invest your time and like what what's what are you going to get the immediately um the dividends from, you know, like whatever time you put in. So, um I think what you're talking about is what what I'm calling the project prioritizer, so it it basically walks you through um how you would go about prioritizing your organizational and archives projects. So, thinking about what's the most important thing to you depending on um I think there's different some variations on on what I'm talking about, but it's it's deciding I think what happens is that when you think of the project as uh as one big lump of something to do, it it's too much. So you have to decide I'm spending my time on this. I'm not spending my time on that. And so it really clarifies what um you want to start with first and, and what's the most important. And so I I found that was really helpful to give to people that are thinking about um taking on this project because it it allows you to focus on what's the most uh what's the most
1: important. The private clients that you take on, what are they generally calling you so, in for? So um
0: I have so I have like my organizational clients where I'm doing archives and records management and then I have my kind of individual and family um clients. So the individual and family clients, I have one client this week that I'm going to her house and I'm organizing um, her I guess you would call like her family mementos. So it's things that she, she has two daughters that are around, uh, that are preteen or teenage. So she has um, things related to trips. She has a lot of concert tickets and she loves the Grateful Dead and fish. So it's like organizing those concert tickets for her. Um, it's, she has uh mitzvah, like mementos from her daughter's um getting ba mitzvahed she has other smaller family papers and photographs and um, childhood drawings that she has so it's and they're all organized like in Lulu lululemon bags on her dining room table so i'm coming in mm-hmm. and You know, to her, it seemed like a lot of material. And I looked at it and I said, Oh, yeah, this is very, this is very accessible. So I'm going to be going in and working as her personal archivist. So I have already bought um, materials that are going to that I think are going to fit what she has. So that's, you know, acid-free folders and um, archival boxes. And I'm going to be taking what she has, finding kind of the original order of the materials, and then organizing it in a way that she can immediately gain access to the materials. So if she's thinking, okay, what concert did I go to? You know, I think it was 1992 and it was at this place and I saw this band. She can immediately grab that ticket and be able to see The details,
1: right? And so, are any of the things that you're doing for her will they be? um, Is it mostly so that they can be put away and uh, preserved, or will there be parts of it that um, that can easily be, you know, viewed? So, if the kids want to take out and look and see which Grateful Dead concerts their mom went to, um, so will any of it be in kind of album format, or is it going to be tucked away in in Um, these boxes? It's going to be
0: organized in boxes. So I think the idea was that because she was actually thinking she wanted to digitize everything. And so I was thinking, well, I don't know if digitization is always the best option for the first thing that you do. I always advise people to get the analog, like the physical things organized first. And then once that's in order, you can decide whatever you want to do. So I think um, with her materials, I'm organizing it in boxes. So it's um, preserved it's preserved but then if she decides oh you know these specific tickets I want to create a little mini album we could do that as well but I think it's always good to get that baseline of organizational materials and so another example that I have is that I am um digitizing and annotating uh, my grandparents' love letters from about January 1940 to their marriage and June 1940. And so I'm digitizing them and posting them um, in real time. So we're kind of following the courtship. And I was able to do that because I could organize... before I did that I had to organize the letters themselves and then I also got a lot of um, photographs of my grandparents I'm assuming some were from like my grandmother's scrapbook that I think she took apart because it looks like there's kind of scrapbook materials on the back of some of the photographs so I'm using both collections the photo collections and the letter collections to talk to each other and to research um, information like you know she'll my grandfather will be mentioning certain details in the letters and by using the photos I can do some research and vice versa. And so that's been really exciting. But I can only do that once I have that baseline of organization. And and that's what I found in my professional life, too, as an archivist and past jobs where I really had to get everything to a certain order, what we call like intellectual and physical control. And then once you have that, then all the fun projects come out of it because everything's
1: really easily accessible and you know what you have as well that makes so much sense because usually what we hear is you know every everybody loves technology now so it seems like The layperson believes that Mm -hmm. the most important thing is digitizing. You know, you have to get everything digitized. But if you, you know, if you sit down with a three thousand photos and half of them are duplicates, and a a third of them are people that you don't even know who they are, I I can see what you're saying. Like it's, it's to start with the big organizational principles and work down from that. Okay, so I'm, I'm just curious. You said that you were posting your, your uh, grandparents' letters Mm -hmm. on my website. Yeah. So, it's
0: um, margonote.com backslash blog. And I think I'll be doing Letter 20 probably today. So, we're, about, we're halfway through
1: the process. So, you are doing your own um, family history project. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. That's great. <laughs> um, okay. Well, this this call is actually coming or this interview is coming at a really good time for me because – uh, you know, almost all clients that I work with have a lot of photos. Um, and typically, they kind of know which ones they want to include in their book. And they're not asking me for help with organiz- organizing the photos. Um, but right now, I have three different clients who all three have a really big repository of old letters in journals and in, in some diaries and um uh, military records and things like that and and one in particular the man lived um, after he left home he and his parents lived on different continents and so there's about a 20-year period where they were writing gosh weekly or bi-weekly and you know it's all on onion skin paper all very fragile he's done a great job of collecting collecting them all into one binder but um, there there's probably well over a thousand letters there and he does not see that his children will be interested in them, and his plan is to just chuck them. I mean, he thinks that he should just throw them out. And my jaw dropped because I, I was thinking, okay, even as if his kids aren't expressing interest right now, this is this is family history. There's no way that it belongs in the trash. But what kind of advice do you give somebody like that who's maybe not recognizing the value of, of these artifacts? Well, yeah, I, it was... As
0: you were talking, I was trying so hard just to remain silent and not start screaming. So this is, um, I think this is what a lot of times I, I feel like I'm constantly advocating both for um, the family clients and also for my organizational clients that, that history is basically all that we have, right? And so we really have to recognize the value of history. And I think this is what's happening a lot of families. People are getting older, especially like baby baby boomer generation, and like the newer generation is coming up. And they don't necessarily, you know, I think you have to be a certain age in order to understand and appreciate family history. And so for me, that wasn't until maybe, you know, 30s, 40s, right? So a lot of times, people might, you know, teenagers or people in their 20s might not outwardly say, oh, I want this, I want this, but they, they want it. So you have to be, but they might not realize that they want it yet. So I always tell people, try to organize what you have and keep it preserved. And I think what's also helpful too, is that if you have already put in the time to organize it, and it's not just a pile of papers in a basement or an attic, but it's a organized labeled collection of materials, your um, children are less likely just to toss it when you pass, so you want to keep it around. I mean, ultimately, they will inherit it and they can do whatever they want with it. But one would hope at that time they realize the value of the materials. But I've had people come come to me and say, "Look, my, I know my child is not going to want this material, and I, you know, I don't really know how to." advise people to make people realize their, their history. I mean, I think that's what everyone's scared of, but you, you shouldn't proactively get rid of it because you think your children might not want it. You should preserve it. And then they can ultimately decide if they want to keep it or not. But one would hope at that time, they would realize the value that's there, especially if you, especially if you put in the time to organize it and to, you know, annotate it or, or something. One would hope that they would want it.
1: Well, and that brings up a great point because when you do, for any of us who have gotten, you know, we've been the the recipient of somebody who's who is deceased, and then all of a sudden we have their boxes of old photos or old, mostly photos. You know, papers can be by definition we can figure out what they mm-hmm. are usually, but with the photos, and then you and then you see all these photos that have no kind of annotation at all, and you have no idea who they are. So really, it, it, they they pretty much become meaningless, you know, unless it's just a a cool shot and and you happen to like the historical look of it. But if you don't know who is being pictured in the photo, or the context of the photo, um, it really isn't going to be very meaningful to anybody further down the line. So in my mind, it's um, it's an act of generosity to make sure that you are recording names on photos and dates so that when somebody later on gets these, they'll know what they have. And then, like you said, be less likely to to throw them out. Yeah, I love that phrase, an act of
0: generosity, because I think that's really important. And I think, as you said, with papers, even if you don't know what a paper is, you can read it and figure it out with photographs. And I th- with photographs, people also are think that they're visually literate where they might not be. So sometimes it's hard to kind of read a photograph as a historian. Um, It takes kind of some training and really working with a specific set of photographs. So you really do help your descendants when you provide captioning information like for example I'm going through some of my slides that my father took um, when he was in the Navy in Vietnam and so he it's interesting I think he must have had like an archivist you know uh, mindset because he was pretty good at captioning things I think he realized you know especially when he's you know in Asia on a ship that this is kind of a -a once-in-a-lifetime, you know, life experience. So he was very good at documenting, like, where he was, um, what part of the world, and the dates, and what he was looking at. And that's been really helpful for me, because when he was alive, he didn't really talk about his... Um, military experience, because obviously a lot of Vietnam vets don't, um, but now looking through the slides, I can kind of start to see his experience through his eyes, and that's been really helpful, and the captioning is the really important part of that. I also think, too, what I found is with slides, you know, because they have that, that space, people are just much more likely to write a captioning, captions. Whereas with print photographs, because of the nature of the paper, people are kind of less
1: likely sometimes to write on the back. Um, Okay, yeah, I was wondering what you meant when mm -hmm. you said captions in slides. So you're just talking about that stiff white, frame border that goes around the slide. That's where he would jot down the information? Yeah, so he would jot down the information on the slide border, but then he
0: also arranged all the slides on those kind of old-fashioned, like, slide carousels. So, they're in order, which is really Mm -hmm. important. So, I can see the order of the trip. And then the box of the slide carousel also has information. So, I know it's, you know, part you know, this part of this trip from, you know, Hong Kong to whatever in, you know, 1969 or something. So, that's been really helpful. Um, with working with my grandmother's photos, she sometimes would write on the back. So, that that was helpful. So, I could tell, you know, the location of the photograph and the year. Um, but I think with kind of modern, what I'm calling modern or contemporary photographs, which is, you know, probably from, I don't know, the 70s onwards, because of the the nature of the print photograph on the back, it's just hard to write on it. So, people, I think, sometimes didn't. So, then that's, you have, yeah, I have photographs of people that
1: I think are relatives, but it's really hard to tell who's who. And, and then sometimes you probably see the, um, the, What people used to use, I don't know when it was popular, but I've seen it very often for older photos like early 1900s where they have the black paper Uh albums and with the little paste on corners and they would stick a photo in there and then write with a white pen underneath. But then, you know, the photos fall out or um, another big thing that i see is that people will say this is grandma or this is um you know this is dad and we don't know who grandma is because we don't know who the one writing is Um, exactly and that's what i try to say i I
0: said in my book and then i even say to my clients now um that to make sure that when you're organizing images you make sure that you're using complete names so don't just say you know this is Joyce. Say it's like Joyce Smith or, or, you know, don't just say this is my brother. This is, you know, Martin August Note. So it's, it's helpful to tell, you want to basically be helpful to that future
1: person that's looking at that photograph. Well, and another thing that I've come across recently is, you know, you were talking about the military and that's so common where, where men particularly who have fought in wars, world war to to you know korea to vietnam they they were not in the habit of talking about it for the most part at least what i've experienced so until later in life and possibly not ever at all um but what i've come across now lately is are some letters that people wrote during the war so in particular i have one client that i'm working with and they gave me a few letters that they had and um the letters are dated, but they're censored to an extent. Um, and they're typewritten. And I don't have, so they're copies, and I don't have the signature. And it wasn't, I was I was beating my head against the wall, because I assumed that they, they were all written by this man's father. Well, it turns out that the dates weren't jibing up. And, and it turns out that some of the uncle's letters got mixed in with the father's letters. So, um, you know, it's something that back in the 1940s, they probably wouldn't have been thinking of. But for me, trying to help them sort out their family history, it was, it was quite a challenge. Let's talk a little bit about the preservation of letters and journals, um, in particular, you know, journals or diaries that are bound. What do you recommend that people do with those? So it really depends
0: on the condition of the journals and this I would also say with scrapbooks too because scrapbooks I think are their own beast and they're kind of uh – they have a lot of mixed media, which can be sometimes kind of problematic from a preservation perspective.
1: So I always right, like all of those roses that somebody presses in after a dance, right?
0: Exactly. Or news, newspaper clippings, too, are just like completely <laughs> deadly because they're just so full of acid. So um, as far as letters, that's pretty easy. I usually say, you know, organize, depending on what they are, find find the order that they're in. So usually they're chronological, usually. So you can just organize them chronologically and then put them in an acid-free folder and just note um, what they are and the dates. For things like journals and scrapbooks, it really depends on the condition of the materials. And then they can be put in... um, their own little boxes. So they can be put in an archival box, an acid-free box, or they can you can even make like a custom box to keep it together. It it just depends on the size and shape of it. So usually with journals for the most part, they're usually pretty common sizes. So I always say, you know, you can easily look at it an archival preservation. You know, there's s- suppliers that are online that you can find boxes to put them in. Um, sometimes with, especially with scrapbooks that might have edges that are poking out, you might have to uh, create a simple uh, little box to, to keep them in. And, th- and that's, you can find directions how to do that online. It's relatively simple to do. You just want to make sure that you're um, preserving everything nicely, and you're not putting too much pressure on any any part of the book, especially the binding, which can be um, a bit sensitive.
1: Do you recommend that people have things lying flat? Hanging folders, I think, can
0: work as long as you know there's enough space to keep them in. For the most part, I would say you'd want them on a bookshelf, like um, upright. I think it's okay to have things lying flat, just as long as there's not too many boxes stacked. On each other because that that weight of that upper box is going to um, affect the lower box. Mm-hmm. But as long as there's like airflow between the materials and things are packaged in a nice way that they're not getting rumpled or um, and they're protected, um, there's a multiple way that you can store things. Just as long as it's not causing any strain on the on the binding or the book.
1: Mm-hmm. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making, you know, whether that's organization or probably more more so towards the, the private individuals that you're helping?
0: So yeah, the first thing that I tell people is to take their materials out of harm's way. So that means getting them out of basements and attics and sheds and garages and all other places that have uh, fluctuations in temperature and humidity. I feel like sometimes people think, oh, you know, I, I can just keep these things, you know, these boxes of materials in these areas, but they're really um, bad for the materials over time because you have problems with pests and moisture and temperature. And so that's the number one thing I say is get them out of those places. And then um, the other thing, what I see people doing is they get really uh, fixated on the details of things. And so what I always say, and this is an archival principle, is that you always want to think of groups of materials. You don't necessarily want to think of individual items. And if you think of individual items in your collections, you're going to drive yourself crazy. You really have to think of groups. So what are the big buckets that you can sort these your materials into? So um, it's keeping, let's say you have you know, a hundred letters of uh, correspondence between your mother and father, you'd keep that in one group. And then you'd keep the letters of maybe other relatives in in the other group. So you want to always be thinking of kind of the big picture and very high level groupings that you can keep the materials. The other thing is that I think people want to really sort things in the way that they think it should be sorted. And I always say you want to keep Um, the original order. This is an archival principle. So, you want to have your material, you want to maintain whatever order the materials are in if it's obvious that they're in an order because that's how the creator of the materials organize the, the things. And so, it's helpful to maintain that order so you don't want to intermingle different collections so in the book I use an example of my grandmother's recipes so I have an Irish grandmother and a Lithuanian grandmother and so in the same way that you wouldn't have necessarily have like borscht with Irish soda bread you wouldn't necessarily put these recipes together because they're separate collections Mm -hmm. and they tell I, I learned so much from the grandmothers by keeping them separate. So one grandmother might organize things by, uh, alphabetically and the other grandmother might organize things by themes or, you know, dinner parties or, you know, small, like, you know, breakfast meals or desserts. So you want to keep those order. You want to maintain that order. And you also want to keep those collections separate because they tell you something about the creator. Um, The other thing that I say is that people also um, get really fixated on removing duplicates. And I always say, I don't think it's worth the trouble, especially with professional archivists. We don't really worry about duplicates because the time, like, so to bring it to an individual level, if you have photographs where you know that you have multiples of photographs It doesn't necessarily make any sense to spend all that time removing some of the duplicates because that's time that's not really... It, it takes a lot of time to remove the duplicates, but it doesn't really save you any space. And so I always say, like, who cares if you have three of the same photographs or five, you just get them in their group. And then you can always go kind of in a, a deeper dive and organize that group at a much granular level. But don't worry about, you know, multiples of things, because you're of course, always focused on groups,
1: Margot. I'm I'm laughing inside because I am I've done pretty much everything that you say oh. that people should not do. <laughs> so I'm thinking right now where I have all of my photos, and they're they're up in the attic or they're down in my basement, which oh, no, floods no. on occasion. So you know, you would have thought I would have recognized that one on my own. Um, but the other thing I'm just remembering, probably 15 years ago, or maybe even longer. If you you remember, there was the period when everybody was having the photos printed and, um, and and then, you know, then double, you know, getting a free set, uh, you got a free set of, of double prints, um, or this second set was free, and then for a while, places like Walgreens was saying, "Okay, you can have triple, um, triple prints for the price of one." And I remember spending an entire weekend going through all of my photos and trying to weed out all of the doubles and the triples. And you know, it got me; it did not get me very far. And then I don't even know what happened to the piles that that I ended up with. So, yeah, all of this stuff is so good, and and. You know, like I said, it's. I I really want to know how to help my clients, but this is really good stuff for me to be. You know, it's like the plumber with the with the leaky sink. You know, he goes out and fixes everybody else's sink, but his is the last one to get done. That's kind of how I feel about my own family archives. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes I have to.
0: You know, I'm. It's very easy for me to give this advice, but I also have to use it myself in my own family archives, too. So it's good for me to say it and then also use it in my own life, too. And I would say the best place that I recommend for people to keep family archives are in an interior closet, um, like a bedroom closet Mm -hmm. or a linen closet, even though, you know, that's kind of an unusual space. But it's part of your house that has the least amount of fluctuation with temperature and humidity. And it's away from things like exterior walls or, um windows or any type of direct light.
1: Right, light. That's what I was gonna mm-hmm. say too. Yeah, that's always damaging on pretty much everything. Yes, right? definitely. Right. Um you were saying how um, if you get all of these groups, you know, if you organize in groups and then you work from there, it's a little bit like what we do when we're writing somebody's family history or life story, because um, when you when you get all of the information together, then you can kind of get a big overview and even sort of put it in outline format so that you can see what material you have to go into the book. So it's, it's the same, you know, what you're talking about is like, but the physical artifacts we deal with in a similar way with all of those, those memories that we're trying to work into, um, into a story for people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's I don't want to get too much into preservation because I know that there's um, there could be a lot of details. But if you're working with just an individual and if if we as personal historians go into somebody's house and and, they, and we can really tell that they're overwhelmed with their fo- let's say their photo collections. Um, what are some of the good principles like really basic things to do? So we talked about um, putting them in boxes um, and talked about having captions. How would somebody go about starting that if they've gotten together, if they've gotten their things organized to some extent, and they know that they want uh, the things that they want to first start working on.
0: Sure. So I always think about what are the enclosures that you need, and um, the best place that I found for people that aren't familiar with any type of archivists or preservation materials is go to the container store because there's a section in there that has archival boxes and folders, and so you can really see what you're looking you're looking at and what you'd want to get to store the materials because I think people store things in like old Amazon boxes or things or plastic containers. And those aren't the best because they can, they don't have airflow and the materials themselves can give off gases and it's, it's kind of a mess. So I always say either.
1: Okay. Wait, I, I want to actually interrupt you there for a second, because you would know this. I heard a long time ago, this, this rumor that you should not put, um, that you should not put your photos in in archives, in well, really store anything in cardboard boxes because cardboard uh, attracts roaches. Have you ever heard that? Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean,
0: I, I think I don't know if it it I don't know if cockroaches like, but I imagine there's like glue and other yummy things that they like to have. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and the type of boxes that you're talking about, these archival boxes, what are they? So made they're made,
0: out, made of? out of a treated. Um, it's like acid-free it's some type of cardboard but it doesn't give off um it doesn't give off acids and it doesn't have what's what we call lignin, which is like a kind of a material that can be acidic as well it's a neutral cardboard that can contain things and preserve it and over over a long period of time so you can find um i mean you can buy these things on amazon you can go to the preservation um retailers like uh, the one that i found really helpful is called gaylord archival and they have great customer service or you can go to the container store and there's a there's a part um that's more about like uh there's a section that has archival folders and archival boxes and photo boxes and um, like garment bags for, you know, like christening gowns or wedding gowns. So it, it has a lot of materials. And I think I always advise people to go there first because then you can see what these things look like. They're usually kind of grayish boxes and, and kind of manila type folders. And so it's helpful to see kind of what's out there in order to plan on on how you would organize things.
1: When I was reading your book, I, I was remembering going into some archives. So um, if, if anybody, if any of the listeners are, are having trouble um Picturing what any of these look like, you know, you can go into your university li- archives or libraries. Sometimes they house historical archives, and you can see exactly how professionals do these things. And one thing that brings me back to Margot is uh, you talked about how, um, and now I can't remember what they're called. Are they? The f- they're not field notes. They're the notes that you take um, to say what the contents of a an, a, a box of mm-hmm. archives is. Um, a finding
0: aid. So that's a guide where it's and. And so finding aids at, let's say, a university archives are very elaborate where they're talking about scope and biographical notes, but it's basically, you can also use it in your personal archive. So it's basically a, what I always advise people to do is make a Word document and you're just writing about, you know, on the folder level, what do you have? So in box one, we have alphabetize, you know, these folders, box two, we have these materials, box three, we have these materials. And so it allows you to locate what you're looking for without having to dig through boxes. And it helps you give a very um, Mm -hmm. overarching view of the materials that you have and how they're organized and the dates and the ranges. And so that way, you can organize the folders in ways that you want without having to put a lot of information on the folders themselves, you can use that finding aid as a way to document everything that you're finding within within your boxes of materials.
1: And I can see how that would be really helpful if, you know, if you jumped on Google Docs and you shared it with family members because that's what I've found with with all of my clients. You know, some some clients will have historical family documents, but they know that some cousin or brother has, you know, a missing piece that we're looking for. And if you're really if you're doing these finding aids and sharing with other family members and they're willing to do You know, a quick write up of what they have, I could see how that would be really helpful for even people who want to document their own family history. Exactly. And so finding
0: aids are, I think you touched upon something that's really important too. When you have collections that are in all different places, that finding aid is the thing that kind of binds everything together. So it doesn't matter if, you know, Uncle Tony has this and Aunt Margie has that, because the finding aid allows you to kind of share those resources and map where everything's located. So it's extremely helpful for keeping track, especially if you have, you know, a lot of materials. Even if you have a few boxes of things, um, I still find it helpful to to have a finding aid.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, obviously, there's, you know, everybody has some form of collections, almost everybody. Um, if if we as personal historians are going out and, you know, the, the people that are contacting us are already interested in a look backward. That's the reason why they have us come in. So they already value the family history or their personal history. Um when do we what can we recognize where we will say, oh, you need to bring in some outside help. You need somebody like Margot Note to, to come in and help you with your family archives. Well, I think if it it depends on
0: kind of the attitude of the client. So a lot of people are very hands on. So that's why I, I created the book. So the people that either um wanted to do it themselves or felt like they couldn't afford the services of an archivist could kind of take on the project themselves. If you have someone that has Um, that kind of is more of the mindset of, I'd rather have someone else do it for me, Um, like to have this skilled professional and get it done immediately rather than kind of figuring it out themselves. That's when you would bring in a professional archivist. It just depends on what people Mm -hmm. feel comfortable with. Like some people I found that have, you know, are calling me for expertise. Maybe they have a particular you know, question that they have, um, but they're doing it themselves. I have other clients that it's more like, um, for example, like a, a gift to a wife or a husband, like, oh, I, they've been talking about this for years and let's, you know, we have an anniversary coming up, so let's organize this for them. So, it all really depends on, what people are comfortable doing and their their time frame, um, and how much they want to
1: invest in the project too. Boy, there's so much overlap between what you do and what I do. I mean, the way the process works, the way the the thinking works on this side of the client, um, it's exactly how you describe that. Is it pretty much fits with personal history, you know, from from people giving it as gifts to get the the book started um, to you know, whether they think that they want to do it, do it your own project, and then they realize that maybe they're overwhelmed by it. But yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of overlap. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, I think the good point is,
0: and I imagine maybe this is what you find with your clients too, is that they just have to have uh, excitement about their family history. And so we can offer we can offer services that are flexible, so I can I can go all out and and work as your personal archivist, or I can do more of the side of coaching and advising. It it's really very flexible, and it, the goal is to help the client get from state A to state B, and whatever way that that works within their means and
1: their um, their energies. And I imagine it's all done in person, right? The, or is there any way for you to do any of this? Co- coaching over the phone.
0: Yeah, so I have done some. Um, I've done coaching over the phone. Um, I've I've started doing a series of webinars that are helping people kind of think about how they want to do the project, um, but the. The archiving, like the physical archiving itself is done on site. And that's usually, I mean, that's always fun for me because I get to go into someone's, usually a beautiful home and work there and really get into the physicality of things, which I really mm-hmm. love. Um, but it's also puts the client at ease too because it's not like I'm taking materials out of their house. You know, they can see the process and they can see, you know, how I'm thinking about going about things and it, it feels good and it kind of feels luxurious to have you know this type of service done in your house it's kind of a fun it's a fun treat for them and it's a fun treat for me because I get to I as an archivist I miss a bit of the day to day of working with materials even though you know I work with digital materials I work, work with physical materials I'm writing things for other clients but I love the physicality of archives so that's what I love I love when I ever when I have an opportunity to work with other people's archives. It's so much fun.
1: Okay, well, that's where you and I diverge because yeah. I'm thinking about a client that I have in particular right now. Who it's literally from floor to ceiling bookshelves on at least two really large rooms of his house. Every inch is covered with binders of of material. So old letters, old journals, which. <coughs> When I first saw it, I got really excited because I thought, "Oh, here's so much primary source material that we can use to pull into his book." But it's in no order whatsoever. So for somebody like him, who clearly has valued saving all of this through the years, and his wife, who is recently deceased, she also did. But for somebody like that, you know, I'm I'm in way over my head. So um, to know that there are people out out there like you who can come in and bring your very organized mind and your, and your systems to it and, you know, make something that will be helpful for future generations. That's, that's great. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's what I found that people love to save
0: things, but they don't necessarily, as you're saving things in your kind of everyday, you don't really think about that order until you've basically saved a lot of material. So as long as you've saved this stuff, archivists like me can come in and figure out you know the structure of how things are organized and we can get them in a in a better in a a better organizational space so then things like a personal history can be you know created so much faster because you'll have the finding aid or you know you'll be able to look at the and actually use the primary sources as they should be because you know that's what happens people save things but you don't really have an order, so it, it makes things completely overwhelming if you have to constantly be digging through boxes and binders to find material.
1: Right, exactly. So there's a there's a progression, a natural progression. If, you know, I, I I wish I hadn't thought of this before, but to have somebody come in and organize the stuff and then say, okay, now we'll look at what we have and how we can use that for the book that we're working on, um, because they they really go hand in hand. Um, okay, one we're kind of getting close to the end of our time, but. Um, I, I wanted to ask you if there's any chance that you're thinking about doing a follow-up book on uh, digital archives. Well, that's a great question. So um, Creating Family Archives
0: is was self-published through Amazon, I guess, when was that? I, I guess la- last year, 2007. And so this past week or last week, I signed a contract with Society of American, American Archivists, which is the professional de- uh, development organization for archivists in the United States. And so I will be um, revising and expanding Creating Family Archives, and it will be published through Society of Society of American Archivists in about 2019 I believe. And so the two I am expanding what I already have a, a little bit and then I'm adding two more chapters uh, talking about born digital materials and digitization. So born digital is all those things you know like digital images things that are that don't have that were basically born in a digital format that don't have a physical um, physical presence, like a photograph that's been digitized, and so uh, and also like things like AV materials and all that other stuff. Um, and so that's been really exciting because I think I wanted to focus my first version of this book purely on the physical because I found that was kind of the the less overwhelming for people to think about how to organize their paper materials, but digital materials, I think, are more um, endangered um, for a variety of reasons. We know how paper is going to last over the years. You know, we have paper and manuscripts from thousands Mm -hmm. of years ago, but we really don't know how digital materials are going to last. Are, you know, are we going to have word documents in 100 years from now we don't really don't know are we going to have digital photos because they're so machine dependent and that's what we're finding with especially with av materials because um, once there's a loss of that magnetic film you have a lot of problems and so it just it can become to a point where it's unreadable and so i think um Mm -hmm. that's what people are really have to take control of especially materials that have are created from the 70s 80s 90s and beyond um so that's what the focus
1: of this next edition is going to be on um well congratulations that's that's exciting that you're doing that and i just want to tell um anybody listening if your book that's out now the current version it's excellent i would absolutely not wait to buy you know wait for the publication of this, of the next one, because you've got so much really good practical information that people can put into practice right away um, with this book. And, and I, I'm already thinking, you know, I, I give usually at clients um, when I'm working with clients at the very end, when, when we're finishing the project, I usually give them a small gift and I'm thinking this book is a great gift for, for many of the clients that I, you know, that I'm working with right now.
0: That's, yeah, that's great to hear. That's what I, and that's what I'm excited about this this new edition because we want to make it really special and um, we want to make it so it'll be, you know, sold at the National Archives gift shop and historical society, but uh, yeah, and I and I purposely made creating family archives that I wanted it to be a very easy, quick read for people, um, that the, it could be imme- immediately actionable, because I think a lot of the literature about archives can be very you know, it's very focused on the professional aspect and it can be very jargony. And it's, there's not a lot of good resources out there for people that are interested in their family, you know, family archives. So that's why I wanted to create something that would really help people and be very readable. So I, I really appreciate you saying that because yeah, I've been giving, I've been giving these books to people that are interested in it and it's affordable too. That was the other thing too. I did, I wanted to
1: create something that, you know, you could easily buy, easily read and easily implement. Right. Well, you, you nailed it. So you, you did a great job with that. And you definitely have the writing shop. I'm I'm not surprised at all that the that the professional organization reached out to you because you your writing is very good. So it's good, clear information and it's delivered in a very um in in a way that makes reading a pleasure. So um where can readers find your book or listeners find your book? Where can they reach out to you? Um if if they have questions for you or if they want your services, where can they find you?
0: Sure. So the best place to find me is at my website, which is margonote.com. That's spelled M-A-R-G-O-T-N-O-T-E. Um, and then I also have a Facebook group devoted to this page. It's called Creating Family Archives. It's a private group, but you can ask to join. I think we have 500 members right now. Okay. And, um, that's where I can have, I have a lot of updates. I do Facebook lives, um, talking through, I had a series, um, a couple months ago that was walking through each chapter. And now I'm kind of checking in once in a while to talk about specific aspects of creating family archives. Um, And then I try to, um, I have a blog that I usually Monday mornings um, that are related to creating family archives, but also other aspects of my work and Kind of archives and information management in general. And then on my website, I have a tab that's devoted to services for individuals. So that ta- walks people through my archives packages, um, depending on the level of service that they want. So, and they can feel free to, you know, join my newsletter and write me an email. I read and answer all my emails. Um, and people are always asking questions about specific aspects of, you know, what should I do about this journal or th- these papers and so I, I like to hear what what people are
1: really struggling with and that what I can help them with it's been it's been very helpful great well thank you so much and I will put all of the links to that you mentioned on the show notes of this episode um, so that listeners can find them there as well and I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through all of this because I think probably a lot of people are like me where you know we don't know much so to have good valuable information from somebody who does this professionally and professionally for individuals and organizations. That's just that's that's a bonus for all of us.
0: Well yeah thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so pleased and I I I love talking about this subject and I love helping people and it's excited to hear that you know there's so many people that are interested in family archives and personal
1: history. It's very exciting. It is I agree. Okay Margot well thank you and good luck with your future book. Okay thank you. And that does it for our interview with professional archivist Margot Note. I hope you've come away with some ideas on how you can help your personal history clients get a handle on their own family photos and papers. And if you have any ideas to share, let us know in the comments section of the show notes at thelifestorycoach.com slash episode nine. That's slash episode nine. And if today's show was helpful, the best way you can return the favor is to leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Amy Woods Butler, personal historian and your coach for building your own personal history business. Now go out and save someone's story.